yeah so you guys welcome to drew's virtual happy hour this is something that i started last week as hopefully kind of feel a little bit more normal um i have i just the background because we have a lot of new faces in here i work for a company called jbs imports out in california and uh we deal in a lot of like really special spirits uh, a lot of esoteric stuff a lot of things that require a little bit more than a uh, you know a hand cell as opposed to just like yeah it's a great shot you know so a little bit more effort that goes into it and we have the privilege of representing some really really amazing brands and um one of those brands is actually uh brand new to the portfolio and uh, we're really excited to have it and that is black top rum and um, judging by the attendance so far, I think some people have heard of it before. So that's really cool that we have this many people out here. And in a brand new role, one of the most uh, traveled bartenders I've seen just via a Google search, um, Mitch Wilson is their, I guess, worldwide brand ambassador. Is that the appropriate uh, yeah. title? Uh, yeah, by, by default, because there's no one, we, ha we haven't employed anyone else yet. <laughs> So I'm just covering it all until you know, we get more people. So. Just a super, super small task. Just cover the entire globe until you know we figure out what else we want to do. That's uh, seems like the yeah. seems like the right <laughs> approach. Um, so again, guys, like this was just kind of set up to to make people uh, feel a little bit more normal about the current situation that we're in. And then while we're doing it, because I know most of us really enjoy talking spirits. Um, we figured, hey, why don't we learn something? So we've had some really fun uh, guests over the past week, and Mitch is tonight. We're going to continue to do this for the rest of the month. So if you guys are interested, I'll continue to post it on all the social media sites and stuff like that. Um, so please keep tuning in. We have all kinds of cool stuff uh, coming up. And uh, so with that said, um, Mitch, why don't why don't we just kind of start with your origins in in this business and what um, you know, what were kind of the steps that led you to this point? Well, I suppose uh, I want to see the guy who's making these. He looks like he's batching daiquiris for everyone. And I'm yeah, so so that's uh, <laughs> my good friend Buddy. He is actually the owner of the Jungle Bird, which is a tiki bar in Sacramento. Um, awesome. they're doing to go cocktails right now. So, um, he's currently their only employee, it seems like. So, uh, he's out, he's, he's making their drinks right now. Oh, so, excellent. but he, he wanted to tune in cause he was very, very excited about this. <laughs> Good man. What a hero. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, I guess backstory wise. So, uh, um, I started in the bar industry a few years back. Um, I, was working in the music industry at the time. I was touring with a friend um, and we needed money. A friend of mine had said, if ever I needed to, or wanted to learn how to bartend, come and find him. And when that time came, uh, he was working at a rum bar in London called Trailer Happiness. Um, and uh, so I went to Trailer, uh, met the guys there and they didn't have any shifts whatsoever. And so, uh, but I was living around the corner, so I'd go in there and, and, you know, have a daiquiri, have a beer, have a shot. And I worked out over, over a period of time that um, the thing the bartenders hated doing most was cleaning down the bar at the end of the night. So I would go in every, few, every two or three nights, go in about an hour before close and help them just clean up the tables, wash down stuff. Um, until uh, their bar back didn't show up one day 
and he was like, okay, you can come in tomorrow and help me with the stock take and you can, you, you'll get your first shift. So that's kind of how I, how I snuck into the bar industry. Um, and trailer kind of opened my eyes to run, you know, I'd never really, I'd, I'd never really seen anything like it before. Um, and certainly where I grew up, uh, outside of London, this place called Essex, uh, we didn't have any fancy cocktail bars or anything. I think the, the, the you know, the only rum I probably ever had was like a Sailor Jerry and Coke. Um, Murnoff Ice was like the fanciest cocktail I think I'd had so far. And so coming to Trailer was like a real, real eye opener into the world of rum, you know, because if you, uh, if anyone's ever been there, you've got like 300 rums on the back bar there. Um, you know, bottles that I've never seen before or since. And, and you just, I don't know, you go into most bars, you might have five shitty rums in the corner, you go to Trailer and you've just got so much to play with and so much to see. So. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was my start in rum, uh, that got me, got me hooked, got me interested. And then I sort of bartended in a few different places. I worked in LA for about, uh, six months, um, came back to London, worked in another bar there. Then oh, I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over the LA thing because yes. it was only a few months, but you were at Cole's red cart, red, uh, red cart bar. And that's right. Yeah. Not only do they have like a really amazing bar, but that's also allegedly the home of the French dip, right? Yes. Home of the so, French dip. <laughs> you know, this is kind of a constant theme through your career, which, you know, if you think about it, it's it's kind of short considering where you're at now. You know, no, in terms of in terms of what you've been able to do in a short amount of time. So you start at arguably one of the best rum bars in the world, you know, and that's kind of, that's actually a really cool story. And then, then you end up at another amazing bar, like one that's considered one of the best in America that also happens to do really rad French dips. I mean, how does that conversation, how does that happen? How do you go from a guy who just occasionally cleans a bar to moving to America <laughs> and kind of being like, oh yeah, by the way, I work at one of the top 25 bars in America, you know, now. Um, I guess I've always been uh, good at finding myself in in weird positions. Um, so, uh, history helps. When I yeah when I when I got to um, when I got to LA um, uh, at the time I had no intention of carrying on in the bar industry. Um, we were I was doing music at that time, still touring, um, and. Uh, we needed money again <laughs> and um, my friend had said I'll oh, go to this bar uh, Harvard and Stone go to Harvard and Stone uh, there's a guest shift there with this bartender called Simon Ford um, he is gonna make some drinks tonight and all the bartenders will be there and I was like oh, okay cool and they emailed ahead um, to Giovanni Martinez who was running Sadie's at the time and um, he, uh, I turned up at Harvard and Stone, had no idea who anyone was. Giovanni met me and was like, oh, everyone, this is, you know, Simon Ford's making drinks on the bar, which I didn't know at the time, was, but was a pretty fucking big deal. And um, Giovanni's like, oh, hey, everyone, this is Mitch. He, he worked at Trailer Happiness. Who wants to hire him? And I'm like, no, like, I polish glasses. I have no idea what I'm doing. And everyone's like, oh. 
you worked at Trailer Happiness, cool. <laughs> so, uh, so I was very lucky that the lady running Coles at the time was uh, a lady called Brent Falco. Um, I'm sure a lot of you know her over in the States. And Brent uh, was like, I can give you some day shifts and you know, you might be bar backing a bit, we can get you on the bar a bit, like it looked fine. I was like, okay, cool. And I was definitely at that time trying to pretend like I knew more than I did and like trying to get away <laughs> with it. So like I, you know, I, I remember emailing Brent and saying, um, uh, or I messaged Brent back at home and I was like, I've got these shifts at this bar what do I do how do I what do I say you know they think I'm some hotshot bartender from trailer and they're like yeah. they're like oh just message the bar owner and, and ask for the specs and I'm like what are the specs and they're like it's like what goes in the cocktails I'm like okay cool so I message Brent and I'm like hey uh can I get the specs and she was like oh you'll be fine they're all classic cocktails and I was like what are the classic cocktails so I'm like looking up their menu online, like Manhattan, what's a Manhattan? What's vermouth? And I'm like <laughs> going in all these things. And so the way I did it for the first, like first couple of weeks I was there, um, cause I knew America worked in ounces and we worked in mills. So every single drink that came up, I just asked the bartender next to me, I was like, um, can you just show me how you make that one? Cause I just want to see like, how you do it here. And, how you do it announces he's like oh yeah sure man like shows shows me the thing and i was like okay i could just remember what the bottles looked like and how much he roughly put in on each one and sort of like <laughs> one by one learn all the, the specs for all these drinks and it didn't take too long brent just kind of looked at me one day and she was like pulled me aside she's like you have no idea what you're doing do you and i was like absolutely no <laughs> she's like it's okay we'll teach you so I learned how to make a really good old fashioned there because you made about a hundred old fashions a day at Colts and it was all like with the brown sugar cube and everything done like proper old school. Um, and then by the time I got back to London, everyone in London thought it was so hilarious that I'd got this bar gig in LA <laughs> that they were like, okay, we'll show you how to do it now properly. And so I got a bit more training in London, uh, worked at this bar called Made in the Shade um and then by the time i got to sydney my resume looked amazing because i'd worked in like london la back in london and then i'd come to sydney and so i rocked up at this bar in sydney and they were like oh, yeah like you want to run this bar I'm like sure <laughs> so so a lot of my job was i i think most bartenders it's a common theme you see on on groups and stuff it's like how do i get started how do i how do I get my first gig? Because no one wants to hire someone without experience. And, and I think it's a bit of luck and it's a bit of just chanting it and reading lots and trying to, trying to make up in your spare time what you, know, <laughs> what you don't know. You just put in the extra effort behind the scenes and hopefully someone gives you enough of a chance and doesn't fire you before you can uh, figure out how to make the drinks. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's a that's another thing that um, maybe because it's such like a modest rise that you you know you kind of glossed over another thing, and then you just end up in Sydney, Australia, from London. Yes. So yeah. you know you end you end up at you know, the Henrietta Supper Club. But like, what brought you what, what brought you out to Sydney? Was it still music, or did you finally agreed to to be a bartender by this point? 
No, uh, so, <laughs> so I still wasn't fully in. Um, I'd sort of finished up uh, touring with, with my friends, um, the, the, um, the musicians, fantastic musician, a guy called St. Leonard. If you guys uh, like your music, check him out. He's awesome. Um, so we sort of finished up and I, I had written a children's book um, that I wanted to get illustrated. And I'd met this girl who was this amazing artist and our bar had just closed and it was like this 400 year old pub that they were gonna sell and turn into a supermarket. It was like a real shame. Um, so I had no reason to be in London and I'd met this, this beautiful girl and she was like, do you wanna to come to Australia? And I was like, sure. So <laughs> flew to Australia on a whim um, and ended, ended up again. I was like, you know, it's like maybe this is my time to to actually get stuck in something and start working and so started working at this bar in sydney um and yeah and it sort of all, all went from there really you know it's um my my first gigs when i got over there because again because i didn't know anyone in the bar industry at that time um i i went and did a couple of uh pop-up gigs for there's a company called sweet and chili that i think is in the states now as well and um, do awesome events um they had some events so i went and, and did like the odd bartending gig for them and then there was this one which was done with time out and there was loads of bartenders there and i was just like i had a notepad at the side of the bar and we were making these shit vodka cocktails and i was just like which bar do you work at okay write them down write them down like <laughs> and just made a list of who to go and visit until uh until i found someone and um i was staying with friends about an hour outside of Sydney at the time and I missed my last bus home uh, so I was stuck at this bar called Hello Sailor in Sydney uh, which was like the late night bar at the time and uh, there was this guy there called uh, uh, Michael Drescher who it was his birthday and he, he definitely had a few drinks and he was like ah oh, I've heard about you. you're the guy who was at trailer and in LA and like we've got this this position coming up at Henrietta Supper Club. And Henrietta's was like this little unicorn in Sydney because Sydney bars had to close by a certain time. We had this thing called a lockout where after midnight you couldn't have shots and after 1.30 you got locked out the door. And um, they tried to kill off the, the Sydney nightlife for a while. And got to Henrietta's and, um, and basically, the because Henrietta's uh, it opened at 10 p.m. and closed at 5 a.m. So it's much like tonight's, tonight's shift here. Um, and pretty much if you could last more than three months there, you ended up running the bar because no one could do those hours or hack that for, for longer than three months or so. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I stayed there for about three months. Everyone else kind of cycled through and it was like, cool, you're, you're running the bar now. I was like, Okay, and um, uh, a, a good friend of mine, he's this huge New Zealander guy who's like almost seven foot tall and just like an absolute unit of a man. Um, he, he told me months, months later uh, that when I first got to the bar, because I was doing the same thing, I was like, how do you make that drink here? And he was like, it's a test. And so he was like proper on edge <laughs> thinking that, man, this hotshot bartender from London's come over and now he's testing me on my specs for a Negroni. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, 
okay, cool, that's how you make a number anyway, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, um, but Henrietta's was, was great because I guess that's where I ended up doing, actually putting in the hours and I could just make drinks like every night, seven hours a night. And I, I just spent the whole time on the bar just, just trying to trying to learn, just trying to practice, you know, and when and because it was a hospital bar, bartenders would just come in and be ordering daiquiris, Manhattans, classics, Negronis all night long, and it just you just got to to put in the practice. So yeah. So bef- before we move on into kind of like more of the jobs that make sense and why you're in the role now, um, <laughs> was there a point in when you were in Australia where you were actually part of like a TEDx talk or an event? Uh, I I helped them out. Yeah, I I helped them. I just sort of volunteered and put um, helped put on some shows. So I was doing some. Uh, I think I did a couple of writing things for them because I was I still try to do as many writing gigs as I could on the side. And um, uh, yeah, they asked me to interview a few people that were going to go up as speakers and put together a couple of stories and stuff. So okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, the, the reason I ask is because through the magic of Google and going past the first two pages, you can find some pretty interesting things on the internet. And, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> one yeah. is actually a bio of you, and I would like to read you this bio, and I want you to tell me what's true and what's not. Now, some of this stuff <laughs> we already know is true because you've, you've already admitted to it, but right. uh, the whole thing, it's, it's somewhat long, so bear with me. But, um, but here it goes. Uh, so it has you listed as a writer and um, says Mitch grew up with the prescribed intentions of studying law at Cambridge in a career in academia. However, life had other plans which led him to dropping out of school and hitting the road. Since then, Mitch has traveled the world looking for stories. His journey so far has led him to become a karate instructor, an Apple genius, a tour manager, a Hunter S. Thompson poet impersonator. I really hope that's true a writer for Disney, <laughs> and a bartender. He is currently transcribing a children's book for cats and searching the world for an empath illustrator who can draw the things in his head. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Surprisingly, that's all true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that's our new Black Tot uh, ambassador right there. <laughs> also a Hunter S. Thompson poet impersonator. Yeah, so that... <laughs> So this comes back to the time in LA. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> God, that's a, a whole other story, which I'll try and cut down for you. But basically, um, my my friend, my very dear friend, and I uh, went over to LA to record his his album. And again, neither of us really had any money. We were just like, let's let's just get there and we'll just work it out because we we'd been touring around Europe a little bit and. The way we toured around Europe was um, essentially we did couch surfing because as a support musician, you get no money whatsoever. I think we made like a hundred pounds or a hundred bucks a night if you were lucky, you know? Um, and we got to LA and I was like, how long do we need? It's like, oh, about six weeks. And after, well, after three months, we still hadn't stepped foot inside the, the record studio. and. Uh, it was taking quite a while to get things going and get the musicians together and get everything going. So that was when I, I started working at Coles and, and, and did the shifts there. Um, but I told them that, well, after three months, my visa's up, so I have, to, I have to leave the country. So, you know, after that, don't give me any more shifts. 
And then three months came up and we had to basically fly out of the country and fly back in to renew our three month visa so we could carry on. Um, and when I came back, they had a couple of shifts, but not really that much. And I'd flown to Argentina and I had a lot of money stolen by uh, a person that I, <laughs> I was staying with in Argentina. Um, so I came back to LA and basically had no money, no, no money for the studio, no money to get around. We were kind of very, very stuck. Um, Wendy actually, who's uh, uh, one of the people on this chat, uh, very kindly put us up for the first three months. That's how we survived the first three months. Oh, um, oh, yeah. By the by, the second three months, uh, I think <laughs> I think Wendy had had enough of us, so we were trying to find <laughs> find a way to carry on. And um, I just come back from Bali, so <laughs> and, I, and I had a new, relatively new boyfriend. So yeah, that was fair. Um, so we, we we stayed with another friend in LA, and then um, we had borrowed a typewriter off a poet who basically did like these on-demand poetry sessions. So you could go up to um, go up to her, tell her a theme, she'd write you a poem and you'd tip her whatever, whatever you thought that poem was worth. And we'd borrowed a typewriter off her for my friend to write up his songs for the music. And I just remember looking around the place and we had, I had no bar shifts left and we had, I think I had like $2 and I was like, I wonder if I could just do that on Venice Beach. So on Venice Beach in LA, as I'm sure some of you know, it's like you've got all these little spots where all these like hawkers can go and sell their wares and sell their stuff. So I, I, from this place, I took the typewriter and like a rug and a hat and some glasses and like a tiki shirt. And it was my first ever tiki shirt. And, um, went down to this spot on Venice Beach. And basically, if you got there early enough, you got the spot. You didn't have to pay for anything. And I didn't have a work visa to be there, so it was definitely illegal. And I just sort of set up this like Hunter S. Thompson living room on Venice Beach and put a sign to saying poet for hire. People would come up and I'd write them a poem and then read it in the thickest English accent I could muster because I realized that they tipped much more if I sounded really English. Um, and yeah, and I did that for about, uh, again, for about three months. So I've got, I've weirdly got this collection of very, very bad poetry, uh, which one day I might just release all the pictures of. <laughs> so, now is this all, is, is this the kind of stuff that goes on the resume or do you just hope that that doesn't come up? It's, I, I don't know, like some, <laughs> sometimes it's a really funny story. It's really hard sometimes to explain like the timeline of how it all fits together because it doesn't really make sense. Like I look back on it and I'm like, I don't understand what happened there. Um, yeah. But yeah, you know, it's, it makes it fun. <laughs> well, uh, I think we need to bring it back to kind of like, you know, normal life and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't expect the, uh, the background research you were going to do. <laughs> Listen, buddy, I got a lot of free time on my hands right now. Okay. <laughs> so I'm doing the research. Um, so the, now this kind of brings us to like stuff that's actually relevant, but you know, to our today's conversation. <laughs> uh, it's not that anything else wasn't. It was really great. I'm glad that you were able to share with us. Um, but then you become the Mason Ferrand ambassador for Australia and New Zealand. So you know, most of us know Mason Ferrand, obviously known for the cognacs, but also within the rum world, they are infamous yeah. for the plantation series, which is you know one of my favorite things in the entire world. 
Um, yeah. How did that opportunity come up? And then when you were in that role, like, you know, what were some of the things that you were doing? How were you, how were you preaching the good word of, uh, of rum to Australia and New Zealand? Um, now, now, you know, the other stories, this kind of fits in quite well with, with how I got all my other jobs. So um, I was at Henrietta's, I was running the bar there. And one day um, a sales rep came in and said, oh, I've got all these plantation bottles. It's this new thing in Australia. Would you like any? And I was like, fuck yeah, like plantation is awesome. And I, I knew it from London. I'd, I remember having shots of it at Trailer and I remember it being this huge thing and Paul McBadden over there like was the owner of Trailer and also is the plantation ambassador. So um, I was like, yeah, we'll take how many different bottles have you got? And I think there was like 12, different skews at the time um, of plantation and I was just like okay well we'll just we'll just take all of them and we just had like a little plantation section on this this rum shelf at the bar and so bartenders started coming in we just started you know introducing everyone to it and everyone was like what are what are these things and I always remember like uh, the first month I was like what's this string stuff around the plantation bottles like I'm gonna cut that off you can't see what's what's behind it and then <laughs> And, uh, and then one of them caught fire as well because we had like candles behind them. And then and I realized if you didn't take the string off, everyone would be like, oh, what's the one with the string on? And then they really like stood out on the bar and I was like, ah, oh, that's probably why they have the string on. So, um, so we were just big fans of Plantation basically and, and, and knowing it from trailer, we just, we just supported it at the bar. And it wasn't very big in Australia at the time. I think like a couple of rum bars had some old vintage bottles of it, but no one really had heard of the brand before. No one really seen it. And they ran a plantation competition um, to make your own zombie. And uh, me and two of the other guys from the bar did this. Uh, we did this basically zombie competition and we, we, carried one of the guys in in a chest and we brought him back to life and set a pineapple on fire and did this whole thing and it was ridiculous i think the drink probably wasn't very good but we did such a good show they were like ah oh, you guys win and um that didn't actually lead to anything except it put me back in touch with paul mcfadden at trailer happiness and um he was like oh well done this thing he's like by the way they're looking for a sales guy in sydney um you should you know, you should speak to them, you should apply. And so I contacted uh, uh, the distributor there and I said, what are you looking for? He's like, oh, it'll just be like a sales role, two days a week. Um, we just want someone who's really good at spreadsheets and admin, like, and I'm thinking, that's not me at all. And he's like, yeah, you know, we just need someone who's really good at all the paperwork and admin side. And I was like, don't, I don't think that's what you need at all. I, th I think what you need is someone to go around, buy everyone a shot and a daiquiri and just like, just get people to try it. Cause I'm sure once they try it, they'll love it and they'll fall in love with it. And he's like, no, we're not going to do a brand ambassador thing. And I was like, well, I was like, how much would you pay a sales guy for doing two days a week? You know, cause I, I can't give up my job to do just that. Like what, what would that be a month? And I think at the time it was like a thousand dollars a month or something in Australia. And 
because of my visa, you're only allowed to have one job at a time anyway. So I said, well, why don't you put that, that thousand dollars, put it on a, a card. I will go and spend that card at bars and buy people's shots of plantation. And if it works, you can hire me afterwards. He's like, oh, I'm not sure. Um, so the next day he calls me back. He's like, okay, we'll give it a go. We'll send you a card. I was like, sweet. So at that time, I'm just thinking, well, at the very worst, I get to have a daiquiri before work and go and do it. And so I just went around to all the bars that I knew and all the ones that were closest to me. And um, I basically said, I was like, have you, have you got plantation? They were like, no. I was like, if you buy a bottle of plantation, I will come in and drink it. And they were like, okay. So everyone started buying in these bottles of plantation. I think we like doubled Sydney in its first month, <laughs> which I think was just me drinking it. So there was no actual, like, wasn't like some great marketing plan. <laughs> it was just- Still count, still count. Just, just so, so we got around and suddenly this little buzz started with plantation because everyone was like, where's this come from? What's this about? And because I was running Henrietta's where all the bartenders would come, we just made it our house shot. So everyone who came in got a shot of original dark. Um, and you know, I, I'd be working at the bar telling them about plantation and uh, after about three months, they were like, okay, we can actually take you on full time now and, and we'll do, do this whole thing. So, um, so yeah, so it, it, it was like a slow build. I think it was like, in the end, it was about nine months that I was just doing this, this card and going around, because <laughs> it takes a long, long time to get visas sorted and stuff in Australia anyway. But, um, but yeah, over that nine months, we sort of built up enough traction that Sydney was suddenly this, this little hub of plantation going on and then gradually spread that around Australia and New Zealand and, and uh, then Asia later on as well. So. Yeah, and then so then you end up landing this role with with Black Tot, which is one of the most infamous rum brands that that's available. And then um, so how how did that happen? How did how that conversation start? Was you know who reached out to you? Who were the people that were instrumental in you kind of becoming this this ambassador? Um, so basically, it all came about uh, mainly because the person that they actually wanted wasn't available. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I got an email from, uh, so Jim Wrigley was the person, Jim Wrigley, uh, who now works in the Cayman Islands, but he was the guy that actually first gave me my shifts at Trailer Happiness back in the day. So sort of all throughout my bar career, he'd been the main go-to person, the person who'd sort of um, helped me along uh, a lot of the steps of the way. And he sent me this email completely out of the blue, just saying, I've just been approached to be uh, this, to work with Black Tart, uh, but I've I've just moved to the Cayman Islands like two months ago, so the job's free, and I'm putting you forward as like if if they want someone who's like me, I'm going to give them the person who I've trained up. Um, so he introduced me to uh, Sakinda Singh, um, who owns the Whiskey Exchange, and um, it's obviously a very big name uh, in the UK. Um, and I had this email, I, at this time, I've got to confess, cause I'd been in Australia for, for five years and obviously in London, I hadn't really been that high up in the bar world at all. So I had no idea who Sakinda was at the time. Uh, so I emailed back very, very like casually like, oh yeah, let me know if you need a hand with anything and didn't hear back for about three months. Um, and then just one day I just get this email back from Sakinda saying, can we have a chat? And 
we had a phone call. We just talked about rum for, I think, like an hour or two on the phone and didn't really discuss the job at all. Um, and then I just got another email saying, can you fly to London next week and, and come and come and meet us and be here? So, uh, yeah, flew over, we had a chat and that night I was, I was at Trailer Happiness actually that night having some daiquiris. I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I didn't even know what the role was at the time, to be honest. I just, uh, <laughs> I knew they had something going. And, um, and I was at Trailer having a daiquiri uh, with Tom there. And I just got this email being like, oh, global brand ambassador. Uh, do you want to do it? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah. That's so amazing for it to come like full circle so perfectly for you. I mean, you know, Chiller's obviously a, a, a very well-known bar, especially within this rum world and stuff like that. Was, was there anybody in that bar that was like, wait a minute, did the, did the guy who cleaned dishes every three days just become the global brand ambassador for Black Top? Like how, <laughs> what the hell? What have I been doing wrong? I'm, I'm pretty sure anyone who was with me from the start and, and knew how just average I was <laughs> when I was first starting off, uh, I, I think they must all just laugh at it. But I don't know. I, I, I hope, uh, hopefully I've put in enough time in between. I should go have some rum in person. Um, hope, <laughs> hopefully, um, I've, you know, I've, I've definitely been lucky and I've definitely had a lot of opportunities which kind of, I was just in the right place at the right time or I just, you know, tried to, uh, tried to put myself in, in the way of those kind of opportunities. But um, I, I, I guess the one thing which I've always tried to do is if, if I ever had the chance to, to do a role or, or to be in that kind of place was just to, I would always treat it as like, I'll just read more than anyone else on this subject. I'll just try and study the shit out of this so that at least, you know, um, I mean, there's always going to be someone smarter than you in the room. There's probably about half a dozen here. I've got <laughs> with Adrian and Dane and Matt Petrek in here. Like plenty of people that could put me in my place with it. But I always, always aim to, to be like, okay, what do you know? How, what did you read? What can I get up there? Like, how can I, how can I get there as, as quickly as I can, you know? So, um, and it has, you know, it's, it, I've been very lucky learning off some smarter people like in Australia, as uh, guy called Tattoo Carlos, who I just, I picked his brain all the time because he's just like a walking encyclopedia. Um, Definitely sounds like a good resource. Tattooed Carlos is like <laughs> yeah. classic, classic mentor name. So yeah, he was, uh, he's, he's wicked. And then like Matt's cocktail wonk blog, I would just like study and go over and be like constantly like, what is the difference between agriculture and Kachasa? Who the fuck knows? Like apparently Matt Petrick knows. Okay. So <laughs> I just like try and find these sources of, of people that do it. And, and that's why I think it's, so it's one of the things, this is probably a bit of a side note, but I think so often amongst the, the top like tier of, of rum nerds and any kind of spirits nerds, I've seen it in all, all types of things. There's, there's sometimes a real like dismissiveness of like, oh, you should have read that or you should know better or you should have already researched this. It's like, well, maybe not, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, you know, if maybe, yeah, okay, you've been doing it for 20 years and, and there's just, so much ground to cover there to, to get where you are but I think you know you you never know who that next person is going to be that might be 
a global ambassador or might be the head of some great run bar, you know, like they might just be a bar back now or they might have no fucking clue at all. But if you, if you kind of shut them out, then they'll never have that opportunity, you know, and I was always very, very lucky that the, you know, the trailer fam was always so like, they'd always help you out. They'd always put you forward. They'd always support you in any way they can. And, um, same with plantation, same with, same with a lot of people in the rum world. So, so I think that's really important. Well, you know, the, the, I think, I think a lot of us can, can agree to that. I mean, I know I'm a pretty avid reader of, of Matt's stuff as well. And, um, you know, in, in his book and, and all that fun stuff. And there's, there are a lot of really great people out there. And now you're going to be one of those people because now you're the walking representation for, for Black Tot Rum, which, you know, most of us will think about the consignment, but you guys have a brand new expression yes. here. And yep. kind of the reason that we're here tonight, and I know it's taken us a little bit, but you have a weird life and we had to talk about it. So uh, <laughs> with, with all that, you know, all that behind us now, um, let's get into this rum. Uh, for those of you who have it, pour yourself a little bit right now so you can enjoy right along with us. But, um, you know, talk about Black Tide, just kind of in general. And then what are the, you know, what's, you know, why should people be excited about this right now? Um, oh, where to start? Yeah, okay, start with some, some rum, I guess. Well, first of all, cheers if anyone has any rum or whiskey or whatever you're drinking. Cheers. <laughs> mm. So I guess for me, what, what was so exciting about coming into this brand and what, what made me really jump at that was um, just, just the history involved with it all. Um, so I guess like, yeah, as, as you say, so it all started off with this guy. This was the last consignment. And this was how Black Top first came into the world about 10, 10 years ago. Um, and then this is our, our new guy, the finest Caribbean, which you've got there. Um, and uh, I think one one things we were talking about earlier was there's a bit of like confusion of like, was like, oh, was this ripping off the guys who made this? It's like, no, we're the same, same people. It's all the same family and all coming from the same spot. Um, but I think it helps to kind of talk about the two next to each other to, to explain it. So um, when it, the original Blacktop last consignment came from uh, these Navy rum flagons that Sakinda had found um, and come across, he, he brought all these flagons together. And uh, the way that came about was pretty interesting, actually. I, I don't know if anyone's seen Navy rum flagons, but maybe I can share um, the pictures here. That might allow me to <laughs> I should have really tested this before um, but here we go let's do that uh, oh okay I don't know if it'll let me share the screens but there's these pictures maybe I can put it in the chat for you guys basically these navy run flagons were discovered so um, the way they were discovered, the way they came about was. Um, Mitch, if you want, I can, if there's a green button at the bottom that says share screen, if you yeah. click on that, that'll allow you to take an option of any window you have open. By the way, you guys, I'm an anthro professor. Um, <laughs> share the screen. So, and, and while you're. Is it, letting, is it letting me do it now? Yeah, is it that, is. 
It is. Okay. Oh, look at that. <laughs> In the meantime, can anyone tell me how shit this is? Because my neighbor gave it to me, but this is the only rum I have in the house. So in chat, you can tell me how bad it is. <laughs> is this, is this going to be a Ministry of Rum uh, <laughs> expose? Um, I can't. I can't actually see your screen anymore now. So I'm just gonna. Can you guys see this? If I put this up. Yeah, we're basically just creeping on your laptop right now. Is what it looks like. Yeah, I okay. can see a photo. Okay, so these are these are what um, these are the navy run flagons essentially, um, and these are some of the ones that we found. So, um, what happened about 12 years ago? Um, there's an there's an arm of whiskey exchange in the UK called Whiskey Auction. Um, and this old sailor guy came up to Sakinda with two of these Navy rum flagons and said, do you want to buy these? And he, he'd never seen them before. And he said, yeah, sure. Um, and then that sailor told another friend who uh, came back with five Navy rum flagons and said, do you want to buy these? And Sakinda was like, yeah, sure. And then they told another friend who came back with 10 flagons. And at that point, Sakinda went, okay, where are these coming from? There must be a source where you guys are getting all these, these supposed Navy run flagons from. Um, so he looked into it. It took him about two years to track them down. And we found uh, basically a load of boxes that looked like this. So these are what the uh, Navy run flagons got stored in. Um, and they came in these boxes. Each flagon is about four and a half liters in size. Um, they're all covered in this wicker. And I think you can see, yeah, all the, all the boxes are packed with sawdust, which makes it very annoying to try and check because when you pull one out, you can't then put it back in. <laughs> would, you say, would you say it's just as bad as packing peanuts? or worse uh it's it's just so messy <laughs> but i guess it's kind of i'll add in um 4.5 liters is actually one imperial gallon one imperial gallon there we go thank you matt petrek <laughs> oh, look at that the assist from matt thank you sir and maybe where i'm at matt matt's basically sitting there with a checklist and and marking off everything i say wrong tonight so i'll be looking for a score at the end <laughs> but um yeah, we've got, so we've got these boxes and, and basically the only reason the, these were put in the boxes was to kind of just, just make them easier to transport because on the ships you could put um, casks and obviously bigger, bigger quantities on, but each one of these boxes would weigh about 26 kilos. I don't know what that is in American weight, but um, it was easy enough to move around and carry two flagons at a time. And this is a picture of what the flagons look like underneath their little wicker casing so they're like these stone jars basically and i don't know if it's worth worth touching on just because you know um of the navy rum story i think there's a there's a few misconceptions but basically um the, the navy was issuing these daily tots of rum to to people for um 239 years so it started in 1731 um, I'm trying to get you guys back. I'm missing looking at you. There we go. Um, so, so yeah, so basically the, Na the Navy rum ration started in 1731. They were giving everyone these tots of rum twice a day. So it started off at, I think, a half pint of overproof rum. 
which was mental because obviously everyone was smashed all of the time and everyone was getting drunk, throwing each other overboard. So then they halved it and then halved it again. And then they started watering it down to make the Navy grog. Um, and this, this carried on for 239 years. And basically you have, um, as, as technology improves and as, as you know, the ships get more advanced and, in 1958, they invented nuclear submarines and people started to ask, you know, like, should we be getting the crew drunk when there's like a big red button and there's nuclear missiles and like, maybe, maybe we shouldn't give them rum every day. And everyone was like, no, we absolutely should. Like, this is, this is outrageous. Of course we need to give them rum. Like, they'll, they'll all leave. Like, this is, this is tradition. This is part of what we do. So, so they argued it for years and years and years until uh, a new admiral started and they said, no, actually, <laughs> actually, this is crazy. Let's stop giving, giving all the, the British Navy uh, a tot of rum. And so they, and they passed it quite quickly. So on the 28th of July, they passed the vote and three days later, it was Black Tot Day, which basically just refers to the, the funeral that they had for the rum. It was the last day of this rum ration. Um, and the sailors were really pissed off about it. Like, I think we look back on it now and we think, you know, well, of course, that's crazy. Why, um, why would we give military people drinks every day? That seems nuts. But, but they really were like, they couldn't believe it that they'd lost this, this rum. And I had an email about uh, six weeks ago uh, from this gentleman. And... Uh, it, was, it was a bottle shop had contacted us and said, oh, we're looking for some Navy rum because this guy's emailed us. And I looked down the thread and it was this old sailor guy who'd just been like, um, I'm looking for some Navy rum because I used to issue the top from 1961 until that terrible day in 1970 where the government did this despicable <laughs> act and got rid of the rum ration. And he was so pissed off about it. And I was like, can I please have this guy's email? Uh, so I've been emailing back and forth with, uh, <laughs> with this guy, this purser who used to give out the rum every day. And he's been telling me all the stories of how they used to steal the rum and sneak some extra out and how they get more than their normal rations and all this kind of stuff. But, um, it really, it really, what's that? I was, I was just going to add um, that the, <clears throat> the number of sailors by that point had dropped substantially. Basically, if you did not take the ration, you got uh, payment instead, and from about 1900s on, uh, fewer and fewer people were actually taking the rum ration um, and taking the money instead. So, well, it was an interesting thing because I, I think I'm not sure. I think we were discussing this at some point, but certainly the this guy John uh, John, who's been giving out the the tots, he said it was. He said you could take the money, but you know certainly in his circle of friends it seems at least they they all took the rum because for them the rum was worth so much more you know you could you could swap it for favors you could give someone some extra rum you could give the chef some extra rum and get some extra food like it was a real like it was a real bartering system you know like kind of how they talk about cigarettes in prison and stuff you know it's like you swap your rum out for whatever you could on the ship so um so yeah but you're right for sure like people were the temperance movement was definitely growing and um there were there were some uh well there was some navies that kind of called it early and i'm i'm pretty sure matt you probably know better than i do but like the american uh 
forces pretty much cut it very early on. But then there was uh, other Navy. Lincoln, 1862. 1862. So they had a good 108 years on the UK. Uh, we carried on drinking because Britannia was the waves. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, the New Zealand Navy didn't stop until, I think it was 1994. Uh, they kept going on. So they were, <clears throat> they were much later on and uh, giving up their tots. But um, it was a real institution. And, and as, as Matt's kind of put up on, on some of his posts, um, deep diving into the Navy run, which are well worth a read if you haven't already. Um, they were blending, you know, 4 million gallons of rum at any one time. So when they cooled off the rum ration, when they actually finally killed it off, they would have still had a lot of rum left. And a lot of this got, got sealed. So I'm just going to show you, I think it's this one. Yeah, so these are, can everyone still see the screen? Um, are you still getting the pictures, Drew? Yeah, yeah. I can see, I can see yeah. it and the little uh, wax stamp on it. Yeah, so the, these wax stamps are basically how they date each Navy rum flagon. Um, so the first date here would be the month and then this would be the year. So this was bottled in December 1970, um, which would have been about five months after Black Top Day. Um, so not all of these wax seals are intact. Some of them break. Um, we had a few fallen soldiers when I went up to sea. So this was a, a cask that had been stored upside down and all the rum had eventually just pushed its way out of the flagon. Um, this was another one where it was kind of leaking and going weird on top, but just hadn't been sealed properly. So that tasted pretty gross. And yes, of course, I tried it. Um, so yeah, it, like, so basically they stored all this rum away in these flagons and it kind of disappeared for a while. So um, as, as far as we understand it, it went into, it was stored in warehouses in London for the time being. And then eventually when they wanted to sell off these warehouse spaces, um, they sold off, at, if not all of it, certainly a, a quite a big portion of these Navy rum flagons. And, and it was picked up by some really random companies. Like a, one of them was a wine company that picked some up. And there was another company in the States that had picked some up. Um, and which is why it took Sekinda so long to actually track all these flagons down because they were dotted around in different parts of the world. Um, so he eventually brought all of these flagons together, got them all in the same place. Um, and that's, that's when uh, we, we first did the last consignment originally. So the last consignment, this guy, um, is uh, the actual bottling of these flagons. So we, we, we put the flagons in together bottled it as it was. Um, the Navy had issued all the rum at 54.5% ABB, um, which was their standard issuing strength. We had lost 0.2% by the time it came around to bottling. So, so all the last consignment was at 54.3, and that's just how it came. That's just what it, what it was by the time we'd emptied out the flagons. Um, just one last little thing I'll show you here before I'll take off the screen share, but this, um, this was a, a cool little thing I just found in one of the boxes. Um, I'm pretty sure that's blood uh, <laughs> on there, but you can see this would have just been like uh, a card basically for marking off orders for the ship and what they had. Um, and then down here on this bottom right, you've got uh, you've got like how much each box should feed. So you've got a box of biscuits feeds 100 men. 
uh, and one jar of rum feeds 80 men. Um, and I just thought it was a, just a cool little relic that we found and came across all the time. So, uh, so yeah, so there's, there's cool stuff. We're still trying to figure out some of it. You know, we've got, um, we've got some boxes of rum which uh, say that they're packed in 1955 and um, were sent over to Antwerp and then sent back 12 years later. Mm. Um, and we're, we're sort of still trying to figure it out. Matt, Matt and I have had a couple of little conversations about this, uh, looking into some of the background of it. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And then, uh, again, I messaged the guy who, this person, John, who had been issuing the tart. And I said, what, why do you think all this rum was left over? And he was just like, what do you mean there's rum left over? Like, who were they? Why, why didn't they drink it? You know, like he was, he was kind of almost uh, offended that I, he was like, Oh, they must've given it, you know, they, they must've given it to one of the other services or something to, to hold on to. Like the Navy would have drunk it, you know, it's like a real point of pride for him. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of the story of how Black Tot started 10 years ago. Um, so that came out on the 40th anniversary of Black Tot Day. Um, and the, Basically, last year we decided, wouldn't it be cool if there was an actual uh, daily tot of rum that you could actually enjoy and not break your your bank or sell your house to do? Because um, <coughs> assignment costs about well in the UK it's about six hundred and fifty pounds, um, so it's not the cheapest <laughs> rum to buy. And obviously, the kind of the whole point of the daily tot was was something you could have every day. It was something for for the crew. It was not at the time it wasn't something special you know obviously now it's this little relic of history that that we've got bottled but um certainly at the time it was more just a well there should be a tasty rum that everyone enjoys and that you know is blended for for the fleet that everyone's going to get along so so last year basically what they did was um they sort of went back to the drawing board and said right rather than try to copy last consignment or just try and do a cheap imitation of it because you can't you can't really create the rum that they were creating with today's production methods um, they were like what what would this blend look like if we started it again today so if we were going to do this black tot uh daily rum ration for the navy of today what would that look like you know what would be the distilleries what would be the flavor profiles people would like um you know part of matt's research has has found out that you know the Navy, after a while, uh, actually said that they didn't want any more Jamaican rum in the blend. Like it was too intense, it was too funky, it was too full on. They, they actually stopped ordering any more Jamaican rum uh, to be blended. Whereas today, I think you know, the rum, the rum world's kind of heading more towards the Jamaican funk, and they like a bit of that. So we've actually put that back into the blend. Um, so I'm going to drink some. Uh, it's 4 a.m. now. It's now been happy hour in the UK for about nine hours. So we're going well. Um, so yeah, so we, we've, we've basically restarted the blend of this. And, and I think the first question people ask is like, oh, does it have any of the old Navy rum flagons in? Or is it any of the last consignment? Like, no, absolutely not. Because otherwise it would cost a ton. Um, but I can tell you what we've put in it and what, what we've put into the blend to try and uh, uh, help explain it a little bit more. So if you haven't had it yet, hopefully you can 
get to try it pretty soon. Um, so in this rum, we've got four different rums in the blend. Can everyone hear me okay? I've got some feedback coming. Everyone good? All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got four different rums in the blend. Uh, so the first one we put in is uh, some Barbados rum. Um, again, I'm not 100% sure uh, what we're allowed to say, but it comes from Foursquare. Uh, it's a five-year-old Barbados rum, so pot and column blend. Uh, that makes up about 35% of the blend of this. Then we've got two Guyanese rums. So the, um, one portion is unaged. That makes up about 20% of the blend. And then the other portion is uh, three to five years old. And that makes up about 40%. Uh, if you've been counting, that brings us up to about 95%. Um, can, you, can, you tell us what the, can you tell us what the mark, what the stills they were from? <laughs> Here we go. Um, no, uh, essentially. So, um, and I'll, t I'll tell you why we, we can't. It's, it, uh, to a certain extent, we don't know. Um, so when we, when we do this blend, as I'm, I'm sure the rum, rum geeks here will know, um, uh, one of the main places you go to if you want to do a rum blend, if you want to create something, you go through EA Shear in Amsterdam. Um, and they have essentially blends on hand of hundreds of different styles of rum and hundreds of different distilleries and different bits and pieces. And um, so when they, so Shear themselves have their own marks and their own blends and own flavor profiles, which they then put into their blends. So, um, so like if you read Matt's deep dive into Guyana and DDL, you'll see, you know, they've got 24 different marks across all their different stills. Um, and, you know, ideally you'd be able to go straight to DDL and say, right, I want uh, this much of mark 23 from the Savelle still or from this still. Um, that tends not to happen through Shear. Um, Shear have another branch called Main Run, which deals pretty much exclusively in single casks. Now in the single casks, it's much more specific. You can say, right, this is a 10 year old Guyanese run from the Port Morant double retort pot still. That's what this rum is, you know, or this one's from the Pollen, or this one's from the Versailles. Um, but with I would the say that, that Port, Morant, Port Morant is sort of the signature note of uh, the actual Navy rum for, for many years. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And there's, as I say, in the, two, in the two Guyanese rums we have, in the three to five, my, I, I would say fairly confidently, there's a, there's a fair bit of Port Morant in that one. That one's pretty, pretty delicious. So, um, and what we're going to do as well, um, to, to try and help this explain this better, because talking about it is one thing, um, but when, when I come over to the States, when we come and do master classes with you, what I've actually done is ordered the four component blends that we use to make up this rum. And so when we do a tasting, or we do a master class together, I'll actually be able to give you each of the four components individually. So you can try the Barbados, try the two Guyanas next to each other, try the Jamaica, um, and sort of see how all those sit on that flavor wheel of rum, you know, like what they all do individually. And then you can try obviously the, the finest Caribbean all together and you can see what the finished product tastes like. So hopefully that will, you know, 
help explain and, and show what's really in the blend and, and make it a little clearer. But yeah, so when, when, when you're making a rum blend with Shear, it's a really interesting process. And, and it's something that I think a lot of rums don't really talk about, um, which is interesting because I think it's fascinating. And Shear's always done a really good job of staying in the background and they, they kind of don't take credit for anything. Um, but if you've ever had a rum where, you know, um, you have a rum, it can't tell you what distillery it's from, and it's kind of a little bit vague, it's probably come from Sheer. Like they've done the blend, they've done something, and um, uh, but it's quite a fascinating process. So as I say, they've got hundreds of different marks which are their own Sheer marks, and, and those themselves, they will, they will add, they will change. So, you know, when we say there's a three to five year in uh, Guyanese rum in this, the reason why we're not more specific is because that blend changes from year to year, you know, like they might have to put a bit more five year in or a bit more younger rum in to, to keep that flavor profile the same, you know? So it's kind of like, it's just like, I don't know when you're cooking or you're making a cocktail or whatever, you know, like I can give you the exact measurements of what everything should be. And just as I give you the exact measurements of what we put in here, but might taste it and go actually it needs, it needs a touch more funk it needs a touch more jamaica it's not quite the same as last year's batch so you know these blends do change and do adjust uh from from year to year and that just is is trying to keep it consistent but yeah that's why sometimes you get those broader age ranges and things like that so in a, in a very <laughs> long-winded way matt uh no i'm not sure exactly what's in there but i do know they're both pot and column blends um, and as I say, I'm pretty sure the three to five years is pretty heavy on the cormorant there. Uh, Mitch, uh, we have a question from, it's like Adrian. Uh, yeah. yeah. So go hey, ahead Adrian. and, and uh, have your question here. Oh, I was just wondering when you're coming to the States, Chicago specifically, I'm very concerned. Hopefully as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, Obviously, it's nuts at the moment everywhere around the world. I mean, we're um, we're kind of trying to figure out what what's going to happen because originally I was hoping to come over to the states like in the next few weeks or so. Um, okay, but if but, not, I mean, assuming that tails isn't interrupted, are you going to be at tails? Yes, I'd, I'll be over for tails if if okay. it's still in your head. Um, uh, J July for us is obviously quite a big one because it's the 50th anniversary of Black Tot Day. So we're, we're kind of hoping things are up and running again by then because we'd like to party with everyone if we can. If not, we're just going to have to like send you all out some minis or something and <laughs> do something there. Um, but yeah, so, so July we're, um, I guess I can tell you, we haven't really told anyone. I, I, don't think I don't think anyone knows this, but this is what we're I'll tell you guys. Um, and you can tell me if you think it's a good idea. Um, but basically, Black Tot Day is the 31st of July. And I don't think anyone really cares about it, but we're going to try and <laughs> obviously make people care about it because that's pretty much my one job. Um, so we're going to turn Black Tot Day into like Black Tot Month. And what we want to do is make all of July sort of partnering up with some of our favorite bottle stores, some of our favorite bars, especially. Um, and, and what we're going to hopefully do is get like some, get some black top cocktails going at all these different bars. 
you'll go to the bar and support them because you'll fucking need to give them as much money as you can right now because they'll be just opening up again, hopefully. And you need to give them your money to keep them alive and get them back in business. Um, so you go and have your black top cocktail. It'll be delicious. You'll be like, mm, that's really good. Um, and then with your cocktail, you'll get like a little rum ration card uh, to invite you back on the 31st of July to that bar. Um, and then we're going to give these bars that take part, we're going to give them some black top. Um, and we're going to do a big toast together at the end of the night. And we're going to sort of like do kind of like the fireworks at New Year's Eve, like London, New York, Paris, like get everyone to do a toast around the Sacramento, world and sort for of sure. celebrate that top together. And so we're, we're hoping to bring everyone together with it. Um, I say, hopefully it will be in the bars themselves, but um, we'll see what happens over the next month or two. And if we need to, uh, we've, we've got these like little mini guys now as well. So we might just have to send you all one of these and you can do a top with us instead. <laughs> so Mitch, one of the, one of the things that we got a little sidetracked on, um, what distillery in Jamaica are they working with? Or maybe I missed that, but I thought we got, I think we got a little. No, no, I, um, so Jamaica, so this is a three-year-old Jamaica. This, uh, the Jamaica components, hundred percent pot still, and that's coming from Long Pond. Oh, um, nice. We are, around, yeah, we are, um, we're playing around with some Hampton as well. Um, we've got, uh, I, again, I don't know if we're meant to tell you this either, but I'll tell you because why not? Um, we, we're bringing out a 50th anniversary blend as well for, for July. Um, if the bottling plant's opening up again, because <laughs> everything's shut up. Um, but we're going to do this 50th anniversary blend and uh, I'm pretty sure all the, all the rum geeks are going to really get excited about it. So it's going to have, it's going to, going to have sort of the, the main pillars, you know, you'll have some Trinidad, Guyana, um, Jamaica, Barbados, but like we're, we're going to really geek out with some of the things we put in this blend, you know? So it's, um, as soon as as soon as we have that actually confirmed, I'll send that send that to you and show you what's in it. And again, we'll give you a full breakdown of all the rums that we're putting into it. But um, yeah, I, I think it's one of the few few rum blends that would you know we could probably put on Ministry of Rum, and people would be like, okay, this is all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a tough crowd to. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that you were just talking about you know, doing a celebration for Black Todd and, you know, whether or not people do that and, you know, one, one company that does do that is, uh, is Pussers and per our conversation yeah. earlier, um, I know you wanted to dispel a lot of, uh, myths about Navy rum and, you know, what a great segue, other than, you know, to kind of start with that is what were some of the things that you wanted to cover in terms of, you know, Navy style rums and maybe what's not, what's not true out there. And then what the goal of Black Tot and having, I mean, you know, you've, you've been extremely open and transparent tonight. Like what are those conversations going to look like moving forward? And what do you kind of want to change in terms of how people view Navy rums? Uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's interesting. I know, and, and again, I know Matt's covered a lot of this all, already on some of his, um, on cocktail work, but um, I think for me, it's more just trying to really, um, yeah, get, I don't know, like I, to give you an analogy in the bartending world, we tell lots of bartending stories 
um, and almost all of them end up being bullshit. You know, it's like, oh, this is how this cocktail came and this was the story behind this. It's like, no, it isn't. Like, that didn't happen at all. Um, and I, I think it's just important with maybe run to, to sort of look at it as a star. It's like, with how, how best to put it, um, I always think of like Demerara sugar with this, right? If everyone's heard of Demerara sugar, you go, oh, Demerara sugar, that's awesome. That's, that's beautiful uh, sugar and it comes from Guyana and it's great. And it's like, well, actually, if you look at most Demerara sugars, they just call it Demerara, but it isn't actually from Guyana. And it's kind of like just a brown sugar that they call Demerara because it's kind of of that style. And, and I think to a certain extent, Navy rum has suffered this a little bit over, over the years. Um, so, I mean, Navy rum has become a term, it's become a style, like, and, and even back in the day, still in the, in the old posters and stuff you see for Navy rum, like it was a marketing term people would use, like, oh yes, you know, drink, drink rum like they do in the Navy, like drink this style of rum. And, and, and I think people got this idea of Navy rum being this black, maybe tasting good, maybe not, like kind of, the, there's some real varying degrees on, on in the Navy rum world, you know, and you can get some pretty cheap, nasty stuff um, and you can get some really awesome stuff, you know, like um, talking about passes, they've just brought out their 50th anniversary blend and it's delicious, you know, I think it's really, really nice. It's really uh, very, very good. So, you know, they've set the bar quite well. Um, and obviously people like passes have done so much for the Navy rum story. And I think they're probably single-handedly responsible for making any bartender give a shit about Navy rum at all. Um, so, so, I mean, like without them, I don't think we would be doing this right now. You know, it's like, it's a very much hand in hand thing. Um, but, there, but there are certain like little, little myths, little things which sort of creep into it. Like, and I think the biggest one is probably just about the you know, the secret recipe that they had for the Navy rum. It's like, well, not really. You know, there was no secret recipe. Um, certainly, I don't think anyone's ever seen it. <laughs> um, the, the blend changed substantially over time, but there was never a specific recipe they always adhered to. Well, exactly. You know, and, and with all the, you know, Matt's uh, very kindly shown me some of the the old archive documents he's pulled out and, you know, showing, you know, the, the Navy, the Admiralty would put out uh, basically orders saying, you know, we want a hundred thousand gallons of this type of rum and come and sell it to us if you've got it, you know, and people would bid and they'd try and sell their rum and then they'd either make it up from one merchant or across a couple. And it wasn't sort of like that one, you know, the Navy never had some like master blender sitting in the tasting room let me oh yes this needs this this needs that it was like no they needed a lot of rum they needed to make this four million gallons of rum for everyone and it'd be a hundred thousand gallons of this and two hundred thousand gallons of that and as much as you try to buy it from the english islands so obviously you know your barbados trinidad jamaica guyana would would, would make sense because they were your own ports for from your navy um but, you know, as Matt's found, there's records from countries all over the world, like pretty much anyone who made rum uh, at some point that went into this Navy rum blend. Um, and I think the only, the only thing which I could say is close to being like, oh, there was a recipe or there was a semblance of people going, 
we want this or we want that, um, was when when they took out the Jamaican run and they said, no, we're not going to add any more Jamaican, we're going to move more into like Trinidad style because, you know, it's not quite as full on as that, that very, very heavy, funky Jamaican style. So, so there was an element of taste in there. There was this element of like, this was the cruise morale. So if the rum didn't taste good, you were going to have a music yeah. yeah. No, they were, they were very adamant about that. Like this was crew is not going to be happy with this. Yeah. Another thing might be fun for you to talk about is how Navy rum was actually underproof. How, what rum, sorry? How Navy, how Navy rum was underproof. Navy rum underproof. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is another like little, this is a proper geeky section we're going to get in. You're going to need your calculators now. But <laughs> so English proof was set at 57.15% ABV. Okay. Why? Because, well, I don't know. I, I hear lots of stories. I hear stories about oh, our gunpowder was different to their gunpowder and this and that. I'm not sure if that's true, if we can legitimize that. I think in the, in the 1600s, I think it was. But I think they got the hydrometers in the, by the 1700s, like mid-1700s, they were using hydrometers. Yeah. So, so yeah, so the, the whole idea of like setting gunpowder alight on ships seems unlikely <laughs> we're still looking for actual proof of that genuinely happening um but yeah the, the proof for england was said it's 57.15 percent abv now one of the things that's like on bottles now when you look at it you've got you know we use abv 46.2 percent on this one 54.3 on this one uh, they used to use some of the older bottlings, you'll see like a degrees sign. Um, and the degrees sign was like the proof and what they were. And so sometimes you see things like saying, oh, this is issued at 95% proof. But then in American terms, 95% proof halved would then be like 47.5% ABV. But that, that isn't what that meant. When, when you see that degrees sign, um, that means the percentage of. So if it was 95% proof, it was actually 95% of 57.15% ABV, um, which seems mental to us, but you've got to, got to remember at this time, like we didn't even use decimals. Like we were still, and I know some of you guys still don't. <laughs> it's like, you know, like this whole uh, uh, metric systems and what wasn't being used like everything was done on these really weird numbers and ways and maths and calculations of doing things so so yeah so navy rum was served four and a half degrees under proof which meant it was 95.5 percent of 57.15 percent abv which meant it came down to 54.5 percent abv which is very complicated and boring. If you look at the original Pusser's rum that was issued in 1980, it was 54.5% ABV. Absolutely, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And, and I think that, that was one of the things that we really came up against with, um, with our new Black Top, because we, we released this at 46.2. And it's like, oh, is it? is it proper Navy rum? Cause it's not 54.5. It's like, well, kind of not really. I mean, cause we wanted to, we wanted to make a rum that people would be able to drink. And, and sometimes 
especially when you're in the bars, you know, I think quite often the, the runs you have to play with aren't ready to make a drink. Like you have to use a splash of something high proof and then blend it with something lighter. And we kind of wanted something that would be a bit more cocktail ready and a bit more cocktail friendly. Um, and I guess it's worth noting, even though they were issuing it to the ships at 54.5% ABV, they were still watering it down to make the grog, you know? So by the time the sailors were actually drinking it, it was kind of a whole different, it was, it was a much lighter style already. But, but, not, but not all the sailors. Uh, the, the officers got their drink of meat. Well, I'm, I'm hearing different things on this now. Oh, I, I, th I think that was the case certainly early doors, but um, yeah. towards the end, it seems that yeah. the officers were no longer allowed to have their yes. cart at all. Right. Anyway, yes. someone had to stay sober on the ship, and unfortunately it was them. So. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's where the term uh, Navy Neaters came from. It was actually, there was actually a brand called Navy Neaters Rum uh, back in the... Uh, 50s through the early 80s, I believe. So, right, okay. I haven't heard of that one. We'll have to have another. <laughs> we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk <laughs> later. Dive into that one. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I guess um, what other things dispel? I think a good bartending one. If there's any bartenders there, like um, the navy grog idea. Like we think of a navy grog, and we think, oh, we've got lime juice in there, and we've got this and that, and like. Navy Grog, in terms of the ships, was it was just rum and water. Like that, that was it. You know, I um, uh, somewhat foolishly asked the top guy, I was like, who juiced all the limes on your ship? And he's like, limes? I was like, yeah, because, you know, the scurvy thing, and they gave you grog to get rid of scurvy. He's like, no, <laughs> it was rum and water. And he's like, what we did have was a, a powder. We had like a scorbic acid powder that we could put in stuff. It's like, but that tasted awful. So yeah, there was no, there was no little bar back on the ships juicing limes for daiquiris. There was no like this whole idea that Admiral Vernon invented the predecessor of the daiquiris. Uh, I, te I teased that in a, in a, one of my talks, but no, Vernon, Vernon did say something along the lines of, they that are good husbands of their resources may use their salt money, something like that, to purchase lime and sugar to augment the diluted uh, rum. Yes, yeah. Um, well, so apparently you could still, because scurvy was a real problem, obviously, on these ships, so they did have to tackle it. Um, uh, but certainly by the 60s, when, when this guy I'm speaking to was serving, uh, he said, if you wanted if you wanted limes or you wanted sugar to put in your rum or anything like that, like you had to pay for them and no one wanted to pay for it. So they were like, nah, <laughs> we'd rather take our chance for the scurvy and <laughs> do what we can. But, but they'd get little rations. So they'd get, um, they get, they essentially had like a lemon powder, uh, which they could add to water or they could add it to their rum, I guess, if they wanted to. Um, and that was their like, scurvy preventative powder that they had to take which would have just been like a, a vitamin c powder i guess that they would have had to had to have to to see them by so so yeah so well it was definitely an issue but there's little things like that so yeah the navy grog thing again just rum and water for the most part and um, the recipe thing that's kind of like mm, no um <laughs> you, also, you, you might also um it might be interesting to explain uh, why the why the flagons 
and uh, sometimes sometimes flagons weren't used. Yeah, I mean, so so yes, the main the main thing I think we touched on this earlier. If this is what what I mean, but just in terms of transporting it around, you know. Um, so if you were gonna drop off rum at a port or get it onto, you know, there there were times where they had to give out rum to the army, for instance. So like World War One, everyone in the trenches would have got some rum rations available. It was never a daily tot. It was never a thing in the army the way it was in the navy. Um, but they, they definitely like when you're in the trenches, you've got some booze because you needed that Dutch courage to get you over the top, you know? Um, so they, they did send out rum and, and you couldn't, you couldn't roll barrels around. You couldn't get barrels into the trenches. You couldn't do stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. And I think that that was, that's what I was alluding to is, is that it seemed to me that the flagons were primarily used for smaller scenarios. Like if you're on a submarine. You couldn't be rolling around an entire cast, but if you were on an aircraft carrier, you know they weren't—they weren't giving you all these flagons. They were giving you entire cases of rum, you know, whatever size they used. So, yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it was definitely a much much easier transport uh, having them in the flagons, and they look cool. And yeah, flagons is a cool word. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, uh, you know, we've, we've uh, kept you here for quite a bit and I do appreciate it, Mitch. Um, before we, we wrap everything up, was there, was there any questions from anybody who, who's here tonight, not showing off their dogs, um, that wants to, uh, that wants to, you know, any questions you want to get answered while we have Mitch before he passes out from exhaustion? When are you coming back, Mitch? To Australia, yeah, hopefully soon. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously not at the moment, but yeah, I know. Once, uh, once it all starts up again, um, we're we're trying to plan it at the moment. So our our company in the UK, um, we we make like three other brands, which are whiskey brands, because you know they're all very whiskey heavy traditionally. Um, Just tell me what I have to buy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, uh, well, currently our, the whiskies from, from our company go through Alba in Australia, which yeah. I think I can see Joey Ty's on the chat here. So if you need anything from Alba, go and speak to Joey Ty because she's awesome. Will do. Um, and I, I think we're looking at it at the moment whether um, if, if they want to take on uh, Black Tot as well or if it's going to be with someone else, I don't know. So, um, so yeah, so... Uh, may, maybe pester Joey Ty and see if she can make some. Oh, I will. <laughs> um, Hi, is it Dan? It is Joey. How are you, doll? Hi, how's it going? Sorry. Hi, Mitch. Hey, Joey. Hi, everyone. Hey, how you doing? Um, I'm all right. Well, just speaking of Alba whiskey in Australia, they are still considering um, about, you know, distributing, carrying on black top, but just, you know, it's the situation at the moment. It's yeah. going to be... A while until they make that decision yeah so and i just recently get laid off by them as well <laughs> so oh, yeah but um i'm i'm considered if they can you know talk to them if they can reinstate me because we have the government have like a new package for keeping the workers so yeah. it's all in we're trying to work all that out too yeah exactly so yeah but you know keep in touch i guess um i'll let you know if i find out anything so yeah, yeah. Right. i think um 
so, something I want, I know, know we haven't really focused too much on it, um, but just, just for anyone in the group that isn't working at a bar or isn't a bartender here um, or in the industry, just if you love booze and, and you frequent these places, like worldwide right now, obviously the hospitality industry has taken the absolute brunt of everything shutting down. And it's one of those like bartenders can't work from home. Like it's not something we can, we can do even, even sending out bottle cocktails is like, it might help a little bit, but it, only, it might only just take the edge off someone's rent or something like that. So I just, um, yeah, we're, we're still trying to figure out like how best to actually make a meaningful difference and how to do it. There's some much bigger brands which are doing some awesome things at the moment and giving away like food vouchers and donating money to the industry. But um, just just one thing I think is worth saying to anyone out there, uh, if you're if you have the good fortune not to be in the hospitality industry and still have some work. <laughs> Come and spend some money, please. Yeah. Please, give, give, <laughs> please go spend some money into our bars, please. Yeah, just, just go to your favorite bar or like message them on Instagram. Just be like, how can we help? Like a lot of them will have t-shirts for sale or bottled cocktails or some of them are selling like gift vouchers. So you can you know, buy a, buy a bar tab for when they open up again. And it just helps get them through this period because, um, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, it's it's gonna really suck if we get to the end of this and all these bars have closed down and you know bartenders for the most part like work like everything I told you guys at the start of this you know how I'm worked in America and then UK and stuff I did all of that you know cash in hand it was all um, on the go so there was you know if that had happened five years ago or ten years ago whenever it was now um, I would have, I would have been stuck just like so many bartenders, you know? So, so yeah, so just, uh, that's kind of just a little side note, but yeah, if you've, if you've got a favorite bar and there's some, uh, I can see on the list, there's some wicked bartenders and bar owners that have joined this, this chat tonight. And, um, yeah, we, we want to support you guys and, and please, you know, go and buy a little bar tab or go and fucking spend some money as soon as they open up again, let's have a party. So. Yeah. Bless. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, and again, guys, this was, this was a, a, you know, a big motivator for why I set up this virtual happy hour because, you know, even as a distributor, <clears throat> there's, there's kind of a sense of displacement, you know, with all this and, you know, it's not nearly as bad as some of my bartender friends and, you know, I was hoping that at the very minimum, these kind of conversations would be an escape for all of us and would kind of just be like hey this is a little bit normal this is us talking spirits because we're so used to talking spirits every day all day and you know my conversations with my two-year-old just don't bring the same type of satisfaction um, that, that i that i get out of um you know out of the spirits talk so um you know for for you know everybody here who's in the u.s um impex is going to be the importer for black tot we have it out to you know, all of our, all of our different, you know, guys across the country, um, here in California, JVS Imports is going to be your distributor. So, you know, make sure you reach out to us and, you know, let's, let's get some, you know, it, probably try to move as many bottles as, as we possibly can. Um, and, um, you know, moving forward, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm going to continue to do uh, these nights and host these nights. So, you know, obviously I don't expect everybody to be here all the time, but if you ever feel 
like you need a little bit of sense of normalcy and you want to maybe learn something new, we have all kinds of great guests, very similar to Mitch, very knowledgeable, great stories that we're going to be telling over the next month. And I hope to God I get to end this after a month. And um, <laughs> as much fun as this has been, nice. as, as much. Oh, I've, got a, I've got a question. How do we get a hold of you? Because I'm in the UK at the moment. So um, how do we get in touch with you on Facebook or anything like that? Um, so that we can enter the video call for any of those chats that you have planned for the future. Uh, uh, so yeah, you can find me on Facebook if you're if you're part of the Ministry of of Rum Group. Um, you know, I was posted <laughs> on there today prom promoting promoting this chat. So and again, just look up Drew Garrison, and there's going to be a picture of me letting my daughter drink a adult beverage so that's that <laughs> guys um <laughs> and uh yeah and i'll you know we'll continue to do these uh, monday through wednesday seven o'clock pacific standard time and um you know just hoping to just to hopefully make people just feel a little bit better but um to, to wrap everything up mitch thank you so much for everything that you shared with us tonight i know all of us are very excited about the um you know, the future of Black Tot, your future as, as the global brand ambassador. And um, we look forward to uh, COVID no longer being a thing and you bringing your pretty face over to the States, back to Australia and everywhere in between so we can hang out and actually you know, drink together and not through a computer. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and Drew, thank you very much for putting all these together. It's, uh, I know what uh, that must be an absolute bull lake of work in the background. So thank you for, for doing it and bringing all these people together. It's awesome. It's uh, really, really nice to see some of these positive things. I remember when it first, when, when this whole thing started, like a few weeks back and a friend of mine was like, oh, do you want to do like, like video call and like have a drink? I was like, that sounds ridiculous. Why would you do that? And now like a few weeks in, I'm like, thank God there are people like you organizing these things. Cause <laughs> <laughs> it'd be, really fucking boring if you want <laughs> well i i gotta tell you i mean a little bit was selfishly motivated i had to i had to continue to feel like i was uh i was i still mattered you know so um there there was a little bit of a little bit of that i think there's also you know we all have a little bit of an ego for in this industry so um but again you guys thank you so much before um, before you go Drew, i thought we should do a little toast um, okay definitely yeah. should Yes. Because, uh, this is this is a thing that we'll be doing soon and all together. <laughs> yes, thing again. Uh, so this is this is a toast that I got taught uh, by Jim Wrigley, the guy who started me off at Trailer Happiness and uh, got me into this job as well. Um, <laughs> pour yourself a little drink if you've got one, or a little glass. Uh, of I know this one. I know this one. I know this one. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I've never done it over video before. This is going to be quite weird. So, but I, I reckon we do the same, same kind of thing. So, so uh, you have to do the arm movements as well. Okay, it's very important. You have to follow along at home. Um, I'll say the first line. You repeat after me, and we'll we'll get through it to the end together. Okay. So, is everyone ready? Yes. 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 Okay. All right. So, repeat after me. There are tall ships. There are tall ships. And there are small ships. There are small, there are small, small ships. ships. And there are ships that sail the sea. And, and there, there are ships that sail the sea. But the best ships. But the, the best, best ships, ships. Are friendships. Our friendships. Our friendships. Our friendships. So here's to you and me. 
So here's Cheers, Mitch. Cheers, Cheers, Cheers Mitch. Well, that was awesome. I look, I look forward to a lifelong friendship with you and everybody else here. So um, hope to see you guys again. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, uh, keep drinking good rum and preaching the good word. And, uh, you know, hopefully we see you guys again out here, uh, out here soon. So uh, from Sacramento, signing off. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. Uh, everybody, stay safe. Have a good night. Thank yeah, you. Stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye, Mitch. Bye, Bye Mitch. Mitch. The Good Bottle Podcast is a product of Fluid Concepts. Episodes are produced, edited, and uploaded by Christopher Sinclair. The music comes to us by two very talented brothers, Leon and Chase Moore. Interact and follow us on social media at The Good Bottle Podcast.